All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 34. I didn't know if we would have enough time, but I was able to do it in first service. So hopefully we can do it in second service. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34. We're picking up. Paul's second missionary journey. He's got his friends with him, but at a certain point, he goes to Athens without his ministry team. They're continuing their work elsewhere. So he goes to Athens, and while he's there, he's seeing the idolatry and the various philosophies, and he's provoked in his spirit. So he begins to preach the gospel there because Paul ain't resting. He's going to tell people about Jesus. So he starts preaching the gospel there, and they become interested enough to have a dialogue with him, so they take him to the Areopagus. We pick up. In verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for... In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard this, the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you be kind to teach us today, to change us, to encourage us. Lord, we pray that you would truly Smile upon us today as we seek you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when I say treasure hunter, I want you to, in your mind, not out loud, had trouble first service, I want you in your mind to say, or to, like, not to say, in your mind, just to come up with the treasure hunter that you know of. Who is it, treasure hunter, that you can name? More than likely, it's going to be a fictional character, right? Who are you going to name? In your head, in your head, like... Because most of us don't know treasure hunters in real life, right? It's not, a, it's not a common thing. But maybe if you're a history nerd or you, you enjoy certain aspects of American history and culture, you might know of one. But I couldn't think of any real treasure hunters. So I thought of Indiana Jones, right? Like, I know he's an archaeologist, but he's a treasure hunter. You know, I think of Indiana Jones. If you're a younger generation, uh, you know him because he's still kicking around. Is 
Indiana Jones, but you probably, you probably think of the Outer Banks. Any people watch Outer Banks? It's a TV series. Okay, we've got one in the back. I see you, Grace. So Outer Banks, it's about these young mis- group of misfit kids called the Pogues, you know, and they go, go on this treasure hunt, and they're finding treasure and everything. You maybe think of... Uh, What's his name? Nick Cage. I mean, not Nick Cage, but the character he plays, right? But think of treasure hunters as these interesting, exciting, uh, almost super heroic characters that are on the hunt for things that we can only dream of. But we don't know of most of us. I think most of us don't know a lot about real treasure hunters. So I started looking into treasure hunters because now I'm thinking about it. And so I start going down the rabbit trail, looking at all these treasure hunters. And uh, there are, of course, there, there were amazing treasures. And they find treasures. They actually do. They find treasures. Uh, but I was kind of focusing on Thomas Beale, Thomas Jefferson Beale, right? So he's kind of made for it. Uh, he's going to be a historical figure. So uh, Thomas Beale in like 1818, he's from Virginia. He gets a bunch of his buddies. They're going to go out west, like to where what's now Colorado, right? So they're, they're going out that way and they're going to do some big game hunting like buffaloes or whatever. I don't know. So they're all going out there to do that. But on their way, somewhere in the midst of this, they stumble into a cache of gold and silver in some mine somewhere. And so they take all this gold and all this silver and they take it back to Virginia and they hide it up in the hills of the county where they live. So they hide it away real safe. And then Thomas, he goes to this pub, right? He sits down and he writes out these three ciphers. And so each cipher gives you a bit more information about this treasure that he found and hid away. And one cipher is, well, what's in this treasure? Like, what what is it all worth? And and another uh, cipher tells you exactly where to find it. And then another cipher shows you who it belongs to, right? And so he took these things together. He put them in a box and he gave it to some innkeeper in town. And he goes, listen, we're going back out there, but could you just hold on to this box for me? I'll be back for it. Just hold on to this box. It's really important. I need it. So they take off again and head back out west and gone. Never heard from again. Right, they just they think maybe they died. Who knows what happened? So innkeeper keeps the box, right? And he's sitting on it. And like 20 years later, he's like, I'm going to get old and die. And I want to know what's in this box. So he opens the box. He looks inside and he finds the ciphers. He can't read the ciphers. He's not that guy. So he gets his buddy, who's real smart, to look at these ciphers. And he, starts, he spends a couple of decades trying to figure this stuff out. So those ciphers are around. You can read the ciphers. Well, you can't unless you can solve the site. You've got to figure out how to do it. It's all in code. One has been translated. Obviously not the one where to find the treasure. But the rest have not yet been decoded. It's pretty cool, right? It's probably not real. I mean, it's probably a total... Like I, I was, there were, the general consensus is it's a fable that somebody, somebody was playing a joke a long, long time ago and made this thing up. But maybe people do actually hunt for it. Not a lot of people. Some people still go. Virginia gets mad because people start digging things up in like Henderson County or something. They get all mad. So like there could be between 50 and 100 million dollars worth of gold and silver somewhere in Virginia. And then I started thinking like, why don't more people do treasure hunting? Well, and you would think like, well, it's because of scarcity, right? There's not a whole lot of treasure to be found. True. Okay. But 50 to 100 million dollars could be in Virginia. Why aren't people spending time on it? And I, th- I think the reason people don't hunt treasure much at all, even if they hear about it, even if it's kind of put there, uh, is because, number one, I think the number one reason is be- why we wouldn't, why I'm not there right now, you don't believe it's real. Why would I hunt for something that's not, that doesn't exist? That's, I'm not going to seek that treasure out. It's not real. I'm going to be a waste of my time. And then the other reason, right, the second reason I think people don't search for it is because it's too hard, it's impossible, it's beyond our capabilities. 
And as I was thinking about all this this week, right, think about the treasure hunters, like that became super clear to me as to two of the basic reasons why most people, when presented with the truth about Jesus Christ, with presented with the truth of God's word, will not seek him. It's because as they consider this in their own mind, in their own heart, why would I seek for God? He's not real. Like that's, just, like that's your religion. That's your thing. It's just something that you believe in, but it's not real. So why would I seek that? And if they do for a moment begin to think that it is real, many of people would say, I, I, I'm not going to seek him because it's too hard. It's too arduous. And I would never ultimately figure it out, which is painful and problematic for those of us who have, who have, by the grace of God, found God, because we understand one of the principles that's in this passage. And I want us to dwell on that one principle today, right? The principle is very simple. We're not only called to seek God, but to help others seek God. And most Christians get the first part, like we're, we're supposed to be seeking the Lord because it's all over the Bible, but we're also supposed to help others seek God as well. So the question then becomes, how? How do we help other people seek God? And that's why I like this passage, because this passage gives us one example of a way to interact with people in a particular culture, in a particular day, and it gives us principles upon which we can say, okay, I can do, I can do these things as I'm trying to help people seek the Lord. All right, I have six points, so <laughs> it's going to take a minute. Six points, uh, but we'll be brief. We've got, we got lunch, okay? We got, we're going to be celebrating the Aldridge's service. We're going to be having chicken and stuff, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure we'll find that treasure, I promise. For today, six points, brief. So how can we as seekers help others seek the Lord? Number one, understand the culture, okay? It, you don't have to understand the culture in order to preach Jesus Christ, but it is a great help and benefit if you do understand the culture in which you are living, in which you are ministering. We see this in verses 22 and 23. Paul is in Athens, right? He's waiting for his friends. He's going to get going on their missionary journey again. So he's in Athens. It's one of the oldest cities in the world, a place of education and architecture. It's this wonderful city. It's filled with temples and altars and gods and goddesses and philosophies and religions and so there's a whole lot of faith happening in this city, but not the right kind of faith because it's not the right kind of religion because they ultimately are worshiping false or pretend gods. And Paul's provoked, so he begins to do his ministry there. And they wind up engaging with him, so they take him to this place called the Areopagus where they would have formal debates. They would also do some trial and law stuff there. But he's there to have formal dialogue with the leadership in particular about his claims, his preaching, his message. But he's doing this with a keen awareness of the culture that he's in. He understands the people. He understands the mindset, the philosophies, at least many of those philosophies. And it's helping him, and you will see it, it helps him communicate in a particular way. You ever notice how Jesus talks differently to different kinds of people? Like sometimes Jesus will say, hey, uh, you need to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Do that. Let's, let's go. You're asking me about the kingdom. You're, this is what I want you to do. To other people, he just says, go and sin no more. To other people, he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. To other people, he says, come and follow me or believe in me. He, he has all these different ways of talking to people in different situations because different kinds of people can be approached with the same truths in different ways in order to help them contemplate the gospel. 
So understanding the culture, the mindset, the beliefs, the values of any given people or place is helpful when doing this. So if you want to help people seek the Lord as you are seeking the Lord, seek to understand context. Paul even sees this in verse 23, right? He's like, listen, I perceive that you are very religious. He's not slamming them. He's not making fun of them. This is not a condemnation. It's an observation. I perceive that you are very religious in your own ways. You even have an altar to an unknown God. So that which you do not know, I'm going to tell you about today. This is interesting because he is identifying that they do not have all knowledge and they know that they don't have all knowledge. They're aware of it. What they're trying to do here is, is, is essentially cover their bases. They're polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods. And they realize, like, listen, we don't have all knowledge, and what if we've missed a god or, or two? So why don't we have an altar to the unknown god we'll worship there just to make sure we're not causing offense to the deities? And Paul says, okay, so you're, you're worshiping something here that you don't understand. This is the thing that I know. The god that you don't is the god that I want to explain to you. He does this because he understands the culture. He can see what's happening. He's paying attention. Where you are lacking knowledge, Paul says, I happen to have it and I'm going to give it to you. So if you want to help others know God, then you are going to help others seek God. And if you want people to seek God, then you should probably know them at least a little bit to help your, your approach and your evangelistic exhortations as you, as you make an appeal to them. So number one, understand the culture. Number two, you've got to bridge the gap, right? Bridge the gap between where they are, what they believe, and what the Bible actually says. We see this in the last part of verse 23, right? This Paul says it very specifically, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's bridging the gap. He's starting with where they are, that he understands, and he's like, okay, I'm going to take you somewhere now, and I want you to come with me. I want you to hear this message that is in this book, right? At the time, Paul only had the first half of this book. But now we have the whole, and he says, I want you to hear God's revelation. I want you to hear God's story. I want you to hear God's promise that he fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. He's taking them from A to B, but he's doing so with an awareness of where they're coming from and what they believe so he can actually move them, at least logically, if not spiritually, He's bridging the gap. He starts with them and their beliefs. This involves correction, right? And we'll see this in the past. He does correct them. He calls them to repentance. It involves the transmission of information. It involves demonstrating relevance. And you think, well, today, like, how would we do this today? If I want to help somebody, if I want to encourage somebody to seek the Lord while they have the opportunity, what do I do? I mean, we don't, they don't necessarily have a, an altar to an unknown God that I can go, ha ha, I got it's such a great setup, by the way. It's so cool. Paul's like, I, I, that's my God, the one you don't know. He's the real one. Now, let me tell you about him. What do we have? Well, I'll, just, I'll give you two, two examples to consider. One is the invention of purpose. Human beings are created with a divine purpose, but because of sin, we don't recognize that purpose without God's help and grace, so we invent purposes. It is very hard to continue to live without some sense of purpose. Some people find it in their family or their, their, their career or uh, their status. People can find it in, in things as small, I don't mean this in a judgmental way, and as small in social media, right? Or they can find it in something as big as their spouse or the idea of a spouse. People invent 
a purpose by which they can live. And this is a great opportunity for us to speak into them with the gospel and say, you value purpose, but I wanna show you what your true purpose is, your ultimate purpose is, and it leads us to where we need to go. So there's the invention of purpose or the hiding of guilt. A lot of people, right, do spend a lot of time seeking for opportunities or ways that they can remove guilt from themselves, right? So they'll, 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 they'll construct a, a way of thinking or a philosophy that allows them to somehow conclude there really is no right or wrong at all, and I shouldn't feel any guilt for anything that I've ever done. I can just pretend that it didn't happen because it's as if it didn't happen because it, there's no value or meaning to it at all. And then there are other people who try to find ways to balance out their guilt. And maybe it's they're going to try really hard to be a really good person and make up for it and make amends. And they do all the right things as if the amassing of their own self-righteousness somehow eradicates the debt of guilt, which we know it doesn't. These are two easy areas where we can begin to speak to people, purpose and guilt, to bridge the gap because everybody experiences the issue of purpose and the issue of guilt. All right, so number one, understand the culture to the best of your ability. Number two, bridge the gap. Number three, get to God, right? You're not just about communicating and finding these sort of similar sort of issues that are in our lives. We ultimately want to bring them to the truth of God and his word. Uh, It says in verse 24, he says, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it. So he's getting right to it. And in fact, he jumps into some pretty deep concepts of God, theology proper, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's amazing. I I mean, this this is deep stuff. What Paul's doing, yes, he's doing theology, by the way. Evangelism is theology. If you're gonna share Jesus, you're doing theology, you're doing it in public, so we'd better be careful in what we say. We try to be precise. We try to be as close to God's word as we can, even in our expressions. And so Paul says, uh, listen, I want you to understand a few things about this God that you don't know. He is the creator, not a creator. The creator of all things in heaven and on earth. He's created it all. And he's, he's omnipresent. You, can't, you don't find him in a temple. He is everywhere simultaneously at once. He gets into the doctrine of aseity. We've covered that here before, aseity. It's, it's that God is independent, self-existent. He does not need you. He does not need me or anyone. Only God exists in this way. And this is why Paul is saying, listen, he doesn't, <laughs> he's not gonna be served by you as if he needs something. He doesn't need you. Not only does he not need you to serve him, he has given you everything good in your life. So so Paul now is saying, listen, God is not small, okay? He's not one of your small deities. He's not being mean. He's just painting a very clear picture of who God really is. He's not a small deity. He is not served. He is not needy. God is, in fact, creator and good. He is giver, the giver of all good things. In in doing this, he's saying, listen, the God that you don't know is the one God that matters. This is the God that you must seek. This is the God to seek. See, we don't just want people to engage in some sort of religious or spiritual activity that they call seeking with a Christian veneer on it. We want people to seek the living God, right? 
We want our friends and our neighbors, our brothers and our sisters, we want our children to passionately seek God with hunger. So we must not only understand them and their hearts or the culture, got to bridge the gap whenever we can and get to God. And then number four, we must point to our purpose. Now, again, this is one way of doing it. These are some of the principles that we would use in engaging the public, the unbelieving world with the truth of God's word. And I love that he does this here. Paul does this here. He points to our purpose in verses 26 through 28. Now, here's what Paul chooses to say about God, or at least the part that's recorded for us. It's what Paul chooses to say about God to these, these Athenians who worship multiple gods. He says this about the God of Israel, the God of creation. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's not embarrassed to say what the Bible says. He says it. He's listen. God made everything from this one man. All the nations of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God has put them where they are and when they are. God is a God of providence. He is involved in creation. He is not distant. He is not a force. He is a being who is orchestrating all things. So he has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Paul gets to this point of purpose, right? He goes from creation, like the God who created all things, to today. He goes, he goes from God to the individual. Because he says, listen, listen the, the God who created heavens and earth is involved. So I want you to think about this God that I'm talking about, where you are. This is what Paul is said to do. He's setting them up to understand why they are when they are why they are, where they are. He wants them to understand this. So he says, okay, the God who created all things, yes, that God, all right. So that God who's over all things, he determined boundaries and times. So where you are and when you are is determined by God. Now you might ask, well, you might think like, sweet. Sometimes I think, sweet, you know? I get to enjoy the decades that I've enjoyed. Those are pretty good decades in many ways. Other times, some people might think like, wow, that's not very cool. I don't like the time in which I live or the place in which I live, it's pretty rough. So the question becomes, why would God determine? What, why did he put me here at this particular time? He gives us the answer. God puts you where you are, when you are, so that you will seek him. You are where you are in order to find God. Your circumstances, your, your overall environment is all an opportunity for you to seek and feel your way to God, and Paul says, find him. He's not far away. God has been involved in your life from the beginning, whether you know it or not, whether you've recognized it or not. And he calls you to seek and to find him. Your purpose is to find or to seek the un known but knowable God. 
I, I like this a lot. I like this a lot because what Paul is saying here, when he says this, he's saying, listen, God is actually knowable, not exhaustively, okay? We can't have full, total knowledge of God because we're finite and he's infinite. But what we can know is what God has told us about himself, right? What he has revealed. So we can know that God is knowable. God is seekable. God is findable. I don't know if that's a word, but he's findable, right? He isn't hiding, the problem isn't with God hiding. The problem is our eyes don't work. Our brains don't work. Our hearts don't work the way that they're supposed to. That's why we have to feel our way to him, Paul says. This is all wrapped up in purpose. This God is different. This God is different. He has made us to seek him. He is not small. He is not impersonal. And Paul, again, talk about bridging the gap. We'll go back to that. You know, Paul is pointing to their philosophers and their poets, saying, you guys, you, you guys have, there are things that you know. There are these sayings that, we, we, that you hold on to that sort of drive this point home. He says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Another one, uh, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That's Epimenides and Eridus that he's quoting I had to look that up. I don't know that. The point is, is that Paul knew that because he knew the culture. He's like, ah, see, you guys, you guys have a basic principle understanding of certain things. I'm going to use those to draw you to this realization of who God is, not little g, big g, God is, and what your responsibility or purpose is, namely to seek him while you have the opportunity. So, Understand the culture. Number two, bridge the gap. Number three, get to God. Number four, point to our purpose. Number five, preach Jesus Christ. If you are a seeker of God, that means a Christian, right, truly. If you are seeking the Lord and you know the Lord and you want to help others seek the Lord, then you have to tell them about Jesus. No one is ultimately seeking the Lord in any meaningful way if we aren't giving them this revelation of Jesus Christ. We see Paul do this in verses 29 through 31. He says, okay, so being God's offspring, right, we belong to him, we're made by him, we're made for him. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I know some people would look at this and go like, I don't see any gospel there. He's telling them to repent and that judgment is coming. Two points to correct your erroneous thinking. Two points. Number one, this is a summary. <laughs> it's a quote of what he said, but it's not everything that Paul said. We would have a super long book if it included all of the entire manuscripts of all of the sermons that were given uh, in the Old and New Testaments. So this is a, a summary, right? A collection of things that Paul said to help us understand the gist of it. Secondly, whenever in Scripture God's prophets or apostles call people to repent, there is an implied truth there. If you repent, God will relent. If you repent of your sins, God will show you mercy and compassion right? Implicit in repentance is faith, right? Because God's not saying, hey, you dummies, you look all gross. Why don't you clean yourselves up so I don't have to mess with you anymore? He's saying, return from your sins and turn toward me. Believe in my son. Like, that's the call to repent. It's not just to stop doing bad things. 
It's to turn away from idolatry and towards the one true God. Faith is a part of this. He is preaching the gospel. He mentions the resurrection of the dead. So he's hitting condemnation. He's hitting judgment. He's hitting repentance. But it's all in the context of a savior who has been raised, who is judge, but is also redeemer. So we preach Jesus Christ. I like to call it preaching. Man, if it's just you on a park bench talking to some rando about Jesus, I call that preaching. You don't have to have a pulpit or a Bible in your hand for it to be preaching. You're just telling them about Jesus and inviting them to repent of their sins and to believe. So yes, if we want to help people seek God, we must show them Jesus because he is the very image of God the final and full revelation of God. He is God in the flesh, the one who identifies with us in our weaknesses and saves us from our waywardness. All right, number six, we want to help others seek God. Uh, trust God with them. There's a really lame slogan that I don't like, but I will use it only in this context and only today, first time in 15 years at Redeemer, I've used this positively. Uh, let go and let God. Normally, I don't like it. I think, it's, I think it's cheesy and not true. But here, I think it's applicable, right? Because what can we do? Well, we can preach the gospel and encourage people to seek the Lord while they have the opportunity. And then you got to let go, let it go and let God handle it because you do not have the, the capability or the power to convert anybody. I certainly don't. And so that's not within our power. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to simply tell people the truth about Jesus, and then it's up to God. So you can let go of that now and trust him with him. That's what Paul does here. Right? Paul, Paul can now like, step aside. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's going to happen. People are going to make fun of the things that we believe and say. But others said, well, we'll hear you out about this again. OK, there's an opening. Not bad. We'll take it. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Oh, God was doing his thing. You never know what it's going to be until it happens, right? Are they going to believe or not? Are they going to start to seek or not? We're not only called to seek God, we're called to help others seek God. But I wanted to... This, this is a passage, preachers love to preach this passage for a whole bunch of reasons. And I've preached it many times before, but I, as I was going through it this last season, right, as we were looking at the book of Acts, I really wanted us to consider this issue of seeking that Paul really puts a point on. Everybody's called to seek the Lord, but what does it mean to seek the Lord? And how do we do it? I mean, can we even seek God? This is usually the first problem that I run into, especially in our circles, in our theological circles, our tribes, our tents, our, our denominational groups and all of that, right? So we, we're not only Baptists, but we're you know, Reformed Baptists, you know, Calvinistic, like, you know, ooh, whatever. So uh, a lot of, listen, a lot of us in this group would be like, no one seeks for God. Yeah, I know, Romans 3. I, yeah, no one seeks for God. They'd like to go to Romans 3. So, so let's go ahead and go there. Um, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is trying to establish that all of humanity is fallen in sin, bound in sin, and in need of redemption. Whether Jew or Gentile, moral or immoral, all are guilty. So he says, to make his point, none, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And it only gets worse from there. Okay, so no one seeks for God. 
So, of course you can make a statement, no one seeks for God. Paul makes a statement, and we know that it's true, but what does it mean, and what does it not mean? Because you can't read the Bible at any clip, at any pace, and not pretty quickly run into God calling people to seek and commending people for seeking him. So you could say, well, okay, no one seeks for God until they do. And why would they? Why do they? So when Paul says no one seeks for God, he also says no one understands. Well, no one understands until they do. And the point really that Paul is making is like all of humanity is bound in sin and no one understands and no one seeks for God apart from his grace. It won't happen apart from his grace. It won't happen apart from his kindness extended to them. Because our hearts are broken. Dead is the word Paul likes to use. Our minds are corrupt. Our, our vision is impaired. And so we need God's grace to change us. So no one understands, no one seeks apart from God's grace. But clearly, seeking does happen. But it only happens in connection to God's grace. So let me just read a couple of passages. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, just pay, when we read these passages, consider not just the word seek, right? What is being said about seeking? It's not just looking for information. You must seek me with your whole heart. If you do that, that's when you're going to find me. Or Matthew uh, chapter 6. Many of you are familiar with this one. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Or, or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. Seeking is built into our faith. There is no Christian faith that doesn't include this principal call and experience of seeking God. We're made for this. We're created for this and in, in, in a very technical sense, recreated for it again when we're born again. We're supposed to seek God. But what is it? What does it mean? It doesn't mean opening our eyes, literally, but it can if you're going to read the Bible. What does it mean to seek God? I want to give you another passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, this is given to Israel in the context of the Old Covenant, right? But the principle is still there, this principle, like he expects his people to seek him. And he, he explains this as, you must have a humble heart, recognize that you are sinful and needy and dependent upon me. So you must humble yourselves and pray, right? What is prayer? But it is an earnest plea for divine help, for divine grace. God, give me what I lack and that which I don't deserve. We're beggars. So it's humility and it's pleading for what I can't get on my own. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent of sin. So this is what seeking God ultimately begins to look like, right? It's this humble, prayerful openness to the truth of God and his word. God, what you say is true, and I need to believe it or receive it. And maybe some people want to seek, but they're like, but I don't believe this now. So humble yourself and be as open as you can as you consider the very word of God. Psalm 105 Verse 4, 
Seek the Lord and his strength. Now, poetic parallelism, right, in the Hebrew scriptures, right? It's where one thing is presented in two ways poetically, right? It's the same truth, but two lines. Seek the Lord in his strength, that's the first line. Seek his presence continually. It's the second line, but it's making the same point. So, seeking the Lord, seeking his strength is seeking his presence, so seeking the Lord is not about the accumulation of, of information, right? We're not, we're not talking about content here as much as we're talking about communion, right? Seeking the Lord, opening ourselves up to his revelation, receiving his word, pleading with him for mercy. It's communion, it's fellowship, it's reconciliation. We seek his face, we seek his presence. That's what God's word says. So here's what this means, right? We'll wrap it up with this. For those of you who are not yet followers of Christ, God has put you where you are so that you will seek him and not in vain. If you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him, you've got to do it with your heart. I mean, Jesus makes the same point, right? Ask, seek, knock. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. If you will seek the Lord with your heart, you will find him. He's not far from you. He's close. And if, if you think like, well, I, I, something's holding me back and I, I don't know what it is and I don't know what to do. All we can encourage you to do is to listen to God's voice, which is in the book. You can read the book. You can, uh, you can come to worship. You can seek him in prayer. We call these things the means of grace because these are the means that God uses to convey grace that ultimately converts. Everybody that I know who's been converted, and I think this applies to everybody who's ever been converted, has been converted because the means of grace have been given to them, and at some point they sought the Lord. Now that seeking the Lord is God's work in your life. If you're seeking the Lord with your heart, that means God is already at work. So I hope if you're seeking the Lord or you're considering it, run with us. You can roll with us because we are still seeking the Lord. That's the thing about being a Christian. It's not that you still don't have to seek the Lord anymore. I'm Christian. I found him. First of all, he found you. Second of all, um, yes, now you can really seek the Lord, truly, because you know what you're seeking. You have assurance. You have faith. And so now you're seeking with this assurance, with this knowledge, you are actually having communion. And we have to keep seeking God because we're still sinful. We're still corrupt. We're still having to repent. So we need to continually seek his grace, his help, his renewing strength through communion, fellowship, and reconciliation. I know a lot of us think like, well, how, you know, how, how do we seek the Lord? And it's, it's really not complicated, right? It's rather simple. You know, you can read the word, you can pray, um, you can worship, you can hang out with these other Christians, you can consider these things. But you can also just do those things and it amount to nothing. It, 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 it really has to do with the posture of the heart and whether or not God is already doing something in us. But before you get overly wrapped up in the how, don't forget the who. Because we fundamentally seek God in Jesus Christ. We'll end with this passage of scripture. It's Colossians chapter three. We heard some of it earlier. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's seek the Lord together in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us. We are undeserving and very needy, and we're so amazed that you are gracious and generous and kind. Lord, you have saved so many of us. We pray that you would continue to save others. We pray, Lord, that we would all rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ, that we would have the joy of salvation, that even today, today would be the first day of salvation for someone here. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us in such a way that we begin to seek, maybe, maybe in a new way for the first time in a long time, even as Christians, we pray that you would show us the value and the beauty in seeking and knowing you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.